you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts 16 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to look at a couple of verses there in that chapter. While you're turning, as I was standing in the back looking and watching, it's good, very, very good to see uh, Dan Hauk and Jonathan Bittner joining the worship team this morning. Dan, of course, because he has returned from Haiti, and Jonathan, of course, because he's home uh, for the summer from Cedarville. So it's good to have them uh, throwing their talent into our services. Acts 16, and I'd like to read from verses 6 through 10 uh, this morning. Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. Here is what the scripture says. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In the last month or so, you may have seen a news story or read in the headlines um, a, a report claiming that Christianity in America is dying. I wonder if you saw a news story like that. If you did, it's, uh, it came from a new Pew Research study that was released recently about how Christianity in America is changing. In fact, they compared um, Americans' self-reporting of their faith in Christ or their faith, just their faith in general, uh, from 2007, and they compared it with 2014. And they found in those seven years that the number of Christians, uh, people who self-identify as Christians, decreased from 78% to 70%. So a seven-year period of time, an 8% decrease, which doesn't seem to bode well, and so the headlines say Christianity in America is dying. Uh, but uh, like most studies, you have to look a little bit deeper to find out. And what you would find if you had read this is that it's not Christianity in general that's dying, but a particular form of Christianity that is struggling and suffering. Uh, you might notice that because actually the study said that the percentage of people who I self-identify as born again or evangelical Christians actually is growing. Um, from 34 to 35 percent, not a huge percentage of growth, but uh, uh, imagine this here, a third, a third of the population in the United States claims to be evangelical Christians. It's kind of astounding, I think. And of those 34 or 35 percent, um, a greater percentage of them than ever before are attending church. In fact, church attendance rates in the United States are higher now than they have been than they were in the 1940s. So uh, evangelicalism is growing. I don't, if I can confess, it's not growing significantly. It's not growing with exuberance. I wonder about the reality of this 35% number. That seems a little high. To me, but it's people's self-identity. It's what they say about themselves. I wonder about our effectiveness. In fact, that another part of the study is they ask people, "What do you believe now?" And the people who self-identify as evangelicals or born-again Christians, only two percent of those said that they came to Christianity from a non-Christian religion. 
So I wonder if our evangelism doesn't seem to be very effective. Regardless here, this one group of which we're a part here, this born-again evangelical group by self-report is growing while Christianity in general is shrinking. Now, why is that? What's happening? I think that we are seeing the collapse of cultural Christianity. That is, um, our culture is changing so much and so rapidly that those who self-identify as Christians merely because it was culturally acceptable or culturally expected because it was um, good for getting elected or because it's what your neighbors thought you should be or because you were hoping to make more sales because you're uh, self-identified as a Christian. Those people who are cultural Christians, they're, they're, they're not feeling that pressure anymore to say, to identify that way. But uh, convictional Christianity is growing. Cultural Christianity collapsing, convictional Christianity, those who hold to the truths of the Bible firmly and by conviction are growing. One of the ways that you can see this, um, this uh, development happening is the rise of what people call the nuns, not women who wear black clothes, but the nuns, that is those who have no religious affiliation, the N-O-N-E, nuns. What is your religious affiliation? None. That number grew in the study from 16 to 23% over the last seven years. It's quite a significant jump. Now, sometimes when you talk to people who belong to this category, one of the things that they will say about themselves, uh, they'll use this old phrase. It's an old phrase you've heard uh, that, that is popular among this group of nuns. They will say of themselves, I am spiritual but not religious. You heard that phrase before? It's a phrase that seems to be ripe for mockery, I think. It's a cliche. But um, uh, what do people mean when they say that? I'm spiritual but not religious. A number of years ago, uh, uh, Linda Mercandante wrote a blog for CNN, uh, their belief blog, and she was trying to, to probe here. What does this mean when people say I'm spiritual but not religious? And she said that people generally who say I'm spiritual but not religious are objecting to two things. First, they're objecting to scientism. Scientism is the idea that science explains everything and anything that science can't measure doesn't exist. So the spiritual but not religious people are rejecting that. She also said, though, that, that spiritual but not religious people are sometimes reacting against organization, organized authoritative, formal, congregational religion. I told you this about a conversation I had a, a few years ago. I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned this before. I was volunteering at uh, the children's school. for. A, I was there for working the spring book fair. <laughs> and I was talking to another parent, and we were introducing ourselves, and we talked about what we did and, and where we lived and, and how many children we had. And I had mentioned that I was a pastor, and she said, oh, we don't really attend church because... We're not big fans of organized religion. And I said, our church would be perfect for you because we're not very organized at all. (laughs) Our chief organizer is our poor, beleaguered administrative assistant. She works against the ongoing tide of my chaos, this poor, underpaid, overworked woman. Um, Actually, uh, what those who are spiritual but not religious 
are interested in is the freedom to embrace, the freedom to embrace all kinds of different practices and experiences. They, they want whatever helps them feel centered, whatever helps them feel in touch with their soul or feeds or nourishes them. This is the first church of Oprah Winfrey. I, I want to be nourished, and I'm going to find it wherever I can, whether it's through um, Eastern meditation or yoga or reading or, or certain spiritual teachers that I do like and, and maybe portions of the Bible and prayer. Just I'm going to put this together. There's this, this pursuit. There's a freedom in being spiritual but not religious to choose your own path, to take your own practices and beliefs and put them together. I just read a passage of scripture that is supposed to clarify for us, at least from the Bible standpoint, what the Bible means when it talks about being spiritual. Uh, it might surprise you that, that it's here in these few verses. I want to show that to you, as a matter of fact, while we're walking along. But it shouldn't surprise you, I don't think, that the book of Acts would be a good place to go when we think about what it means to be a spiritual person, because the Holy Spirit is all over the book of Acts. His work, his power, and, and actually we see in these men and women who were the first followers of Jesus Christ what it means to be spiritual. I want to give you a brief example of this. I know we're going to look at Acts 16 uh, for uh, a good bit of our time, but would you flip with me just for a minute back over to Acts chapter 6, if you wouldn't mind. Acts chapter 6. If you would look with me just at Acts 6, I want to talk to you about a spiritual person here. In fact, his spirituality is highlighted over and over again in this section of Scripture. Do you remember the debate that they were having in Acts chapter 6? It was, there was a problem because of how the charity was being distributed. Some people didn't think it was being done fairly. But look what Acts chapter 6, verse 3, here's the solution that they came up with. Brothers and sisters... Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit, oh, spiritual men, full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And one of those men that was picked was Stephen. Look down at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. What does it mean to be spiritual? First of all, it means to be full of God's grace. It means to interact with people in a way that reflects the kindness, generosity, um, mercy, goodness of God. What else does it mean to be spiritual? It means to be full of power. Um, we, we've talked about the role that these wonders and signs play in the book of Acts before, and I'm sure we'll talk about them again. But this is one of the signs that Stephen is a spiritual person. Look at verse 10. Of Acts six, but they could not stand up against the wisdom of the the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. What else does it mean to be a spiritual person? It means to be a wise person. It means to be a discerning person. It means to be someone who can hear what other people are saying, compare it to the Bible, and and reprove them for it. There is a sharpness about being spiritual. There is an incisive wisdom about being spiritual. This is not what most people think. If, you were to, if someone were to say to you, I'm spiritual but not religious, and you said to them, I think that some of what you believe is hogwash, they would say, well, you're not very spiritual. They don't think that wisdom and discernment is part of being spiritual. It means just 
taking anything that makes you feel spiritual. Well, not according to what happens here in Acts 6. One more thing about Stephen. Look at Acts 7, verse 55. Acts 7, verse 55. Maybe it's on the same page as where we just were. Here's Stephen's martyrdom, verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up. He's spiritual. He looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Um, So being spiritual means being transfixed by the glory of God as it's evident in the face of Jesus Christ. Maybe instead of saying, I'm spiritual but not religious, it would be better to say, I'm spiritual... And so I believe that Jesus is supreme, the Bible is true, God's at work in the world, and loving your neighbor is a great way to live. That would be a better way to talk about what it means to be spiritual. Well, that's Stephen. We could do this again and again in the book of Acts with various people, but we're supposed to be focusing on Acts 16. So turn back there with me this morning, and I want to talk about what these five verses say about being spiritual. In fact, I want to summarize it this way. This is what these verses teach us. It's not everything about being spiritual, but here is um, one of the major emphasis of Acts. Being spiritual, that is, being in step with the Holy Spirit, means having your mind and heart set on the places that the gospel must go. It's not everything, but this is what Acts 16 teaches. Being spiritual means having your mind and your heart set on the places that the gospel must go. This is a short passage that we have before us, and I want to unpack it in three ways. First, I want to go over the story itself. Let's talk about what happens, just the narrative of these events. And the the narrative itself, the story, leads me to, secondly, I want to talk about some questions that I have based on this passage. There's things the Bible tells us here that about that I wish I knew more information. It doesn't tell me everything that I I want to know. So let's uh, think about these questions. And third, uh, we're going to come back in a few minutes to talking about what it means to be spiritual. So let's start with the narrative itself. Uh, This passage here takes place toward the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, You'll remember the whole book of Acts is devoted to telling us how the earliest followers of Christ fulfilled the commission that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is the unfolding of how they fulfilled that commission. And from Acts 13 on, we have the story of Paul's large, significant, long missionary journeys where he takes the gospel to unknown places. We did one of his journeys already in Acts chapter 13 there, and now we're in the midst here of the beginning of the second missionary journey. Now, because traveling is so important here to this story, this would be an excellent time to turn again to the book of maps in the back of your Bible. Uh, well, it's not one of the 66, but it, turn to the maps in the back of your Bible. And if you don't have a book of uh, a collection of maps in the back of your Bible, I very nicely printed out um, this sheet. So if you don't have maps in the back of your Bible, look, you can do two things. You should do two things. One, you can turn to the map on the back of the note sheet. And the second thing that you should do is go buy a Bible with maps in it. Okay, so that's something that's important. 
So find in your uh, Bible the maps. Find the ones labeled Paul's second missionary journey. Keep a finger there and keep a finger in Acts chapter 16. We're going to go back and forth for just a minute. So find the color in your map, if, if your map has, is uh, colored. You can find uh, the, one, the line labeled Paul's second missionary journey. I'm not sure what color it is in your Bible, but you should see it. And where do we start? Well, Acts 15.35 gives us the starting point. Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. So far over on the right of your map, you should find the city of Antioch. It's in Syria uh, there. That's where they were when they started. When Paul started, he was in the church at Antioch. And Acts 15.41 tells us that Paul went through Syria and Cilicia. You can see those large regional headings where Paul was traveling. He'd already been there. He had served there before his, um, his first missionary journey. His hometown of Tarsus is there. Um, and, and Acts 15 tells us that Paul went there to strengthen the churches. That word strengthen is the word, the Greek word uh, from which, uh, what's, it's related to the Greek word episkopos, which is translated in the New Testament overseer. Paul's going to help serve these churches by encouraging them and guiding them and leading them. He's going to shepherd them as he goes back. So from the region of uh, Syria and Cilicia, he goes to Derby and Lystra. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. In Lystra, he picks up Timothy. That's in Acts 16, 1 to 5. And then we come to Acts 16, 6. And the text says that Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, on the map that's in your bulletin, and maybe in the one in your Bible, there's an awful lot of straight lines there between Iconium and Troas. Do you see there's that, just that straight line there? I'm not sure that straight line, that line should be so straight. Because the text tells us he went to the churches in Phrygia and Galatia. You see the little, little title Phrygia there? It's um, kind of pixelated in the bulletin map. But to the right of Ephesus and Miletus, it says Phrygia. That's what that says. Paul was traveling in this region. He had wanted to go to Asia, probably down to the city of Ephesus. But the text says the Holy Spirit kept him from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So he tried to go south or to the southwest and couldn't. Verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, which is there again just to the right of Troas, they tried to enter Bithynia, which is north. He tried to go south. Now he's trying to go north. And why would he go there? There's a lot of cities in Bithynia and Pontus where the gospel could take root. He tried to go north, and, but he had a vision. Uh, no, the spirit of Jesus, verse 7 says, would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went to the city of Troas. Now, why did he go to Troas? Eckhard Schnabel is an expert in uh, the journeys of Paul, and he wonders if uh, Paul here, he tried to go south, the spirit wouldn't let him. He tried to go north, and the spirit wouldn't let him. So what's left? He's come from the east, and he can't go south, and he can't go north. What's left for him? He should go west except you're facing me, he should go west, right? It's the only place left. He's going to go to Troas. Um, Eckhart Schnabel thinks that maybe he's already had in his mind that he's going to leave Troas and cross over into Greece, maybe. 
But it's in Troas, verse 9, that he has a vision. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, how did Paul know that this man was from Macedonia? There's some people who think, I'm going to speculate here because this is all what we have. Some people think that there was a particular style of hat that was common to the Macedonians and that Paul had a vision of a man wearing this sort of hat that the Macedonian men uh, commonly wore, maybe. Some people think that in the vision, Paul had a man, saw a man who looked like Alexander the Great. Remember Alexander the Great, great conqueror of the world? He was from Macedonia, and Paul would have known what he, w- he looked like because of statues or coins. And so maybe Paul saw Alexander the Great saying, come over and help us. <laughs> you think about this. If I had a vision of a man who looked like George Washington, I've seen his picture enough on the quarters in my pocket that if I saw George Washington say, come over and help us, I would go do evangelism in Virginia. Okay. That, I mean, that's just what would happen. Uh, maybe, maybe. Here's another intriguing possibility. Some people wonder if Paul actually saw Luke in his vision. Why would that happen? Well, follow me here for just a minute. Look at verse 10 of Acts 16. It said, After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We. This is the first time in the book of Acts that is written in the first person, plural, we. It appears at this point in time here that Luke has now joined the missions team. Luke has become a part of Paul's ministry team, and he's going to write about what's happening in the first person. It's we, it's us. Actually, there's several sections of the book of of, um, Acts that are called the we sections of the book of Acts because... Luke appears to be writing about himself being included in the group. Now, here's maybe what, what, what happened. Maybe Paul met Luke here in the city of Troas. Can, can you imagine the conversation here that may, might have taken place? Maybe Paul shared the gospel with Luke, and be, Luke became a Christian through this experience. I'm not, I'm not sure. Paul's talking to Luke in Troas, and Paul says, um, oh, I'm, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm, I'm telling people about Jesus. And I tried to go south to Asia, and I couldn't. And I tried to go north to Bithynia, and I couldn't. So here I am in Troas, and I, I, west is the only option. And Luke says, oh, you should go to Philippi. In fact, that's where I'm from, and there's people there who need to hear about Jesus. You should come over and help us. Conversation. It's late at night. They go to sleep. Paul has a dream. And he went, in the dream, what does he see? He sees Luke saying, come over and help us in Philippi, in Macedonia. Maybe. Maybe that's what happened. I'm not sure. They have the, Paul has this vision, this call to Macedonia. It's sometimes called the Macedonian call. If you read old missions works, you'll hear about them talk about their call to ministry, some missionaries, their call to ministry being a Macedonian call. In fact, at the end of our service today, we're going to sing uh, a song that we haven't sung in a long time with a line that refers to the Macedonian call. We have heard the Macedonian call today, send the light. Well, we'll sing it all later, so you'll get to hear it. The Macedonian call. 
We're going to come back to the we sections of, of the book of Acts later. But after the vision here, notice they get together. Uh, Paul had seen the vision. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia because we had concluded, they, they thought about this and talked about this, God has called us to preach the gospel there. That's a short, it's a direct, it's a very clear telling of what happened. But I have some questions about it. Maybe you have these questions too. Here's my first question that I wonder about this, this narrative. How, how does, <coughs> excuse me, how does the Holy Spirit guide Paul? How does this work? In verse 6, he's kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. That sounds very strange. Why would the Holy Spirit do that? And how did the Holy Spirit tell Paul that he was not to preach in Asia? Verse 7, they came to the border of Mysia. They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is identified as the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is risen and ascended into heaven, and he's the one who sent the Holy Spirit. So it's the Spirit from Jesus. We're not disturbed by this, but it's interesting. Why, how did the Spirit of Jesus tell them that they were not to go into Bithynia? Was there a prophecy? Maybe Silas prophesied. What, uh, did Paul have another vision? Well, it's not recorded here. Um, was this an impression or a strong feeling that he had? Here is my settled decision on how the Holy Spirit guided them. I have no idea. And no one else knows either. I, you know, I think the passage does tell us about the special relationship that the Holy Spirit has with the apostles in this uh, formation of this, the church here. But it doesn't tell us, the text doesn't tell us how the Spirit communicated to Paul. I, I'm going to speculate, I'm going to talk about why the text doesn't tell us that in a minute. But, but before we move on to that, this is a passage that raises some questions that people have about guidance and about following the Holy Spirit. How, Paul's following the Holy Spirit. How do we follow the Holy Spirit? Some people ask that question based on this. So that's another question that I want to ask here. How does God guide us today? And does this passage say anything about it? We have to be very careful here. This is not the major point of the text, but it doesn't say anything about guidance. I think it says a little bit, maybe. What we see here, and what I'd like to remind you, I would say this over and over again, is, is this. Keep this principle in mind. God guides us through his word. God guides us through his word. This is the major way we should think about guidance. Remember here, before we get into the specifics of this passage, Paul's obedience to the command that God had given him is what's driving this whole section. He is obeying God. He's obeying the commission that he has received from Jesus. That's why he's going. He's on the move as a result of the revealed word from God. And, and when the Spirit communicated to him that he should not enter Asia, or should not enter Bithynia, he didn't stop. He kept going. Why? Because he was following God's writ, uh, revealed word. I think, I believe that most of the struggles that we have with knowing what to do, with following the Spirit's guidance, most of them would be solved, or at least they'd be significantly reduced if we would focus on using the resources and the opportunities we have to obey the Word. 
That's why in our church we talk about the Bible so much, why we want to learn what the Bible says so much, because um, we believe that God has something for us to do, and he guides us through his word. Now, as someone from the church, um, after I finish the book of Acts, at the rate we're going, 2020, if, they, if when I finish the book of Acts, they come to me and they say, I like studying the book of Acts because missions really interest me. In fact, I would consider myself missions myself, but I haven't been called. I would very gently say to you, the book itself has called you over and over and over again. We just spent months studying this call. Don't wait for an engraved invitation. The Spirit wants the gospel to go. So go. If you have the qualifications and you have the gifts, then obey. He's already spoken in his word. So God guides us through his word. But uh, uh, John Stott also makes some interesting observations, I think, about this passage and what it tells us about God's guidance. Here are some things he says. Notice, first of all, God's guidance is both positive and negative. It's positive and negative. God closes the door, he opens doors, he restrains, he constrains. Even even these good plans that Paul has, it's good for Paul to go preach the gospel in Asia. It's good for Paul to go preach the gospel in Bithynia. Those are good things, and God still said no. Sometimes God says no to your good plans, too. Stott also points out here that God's guidance is both circumstantial and rational. Circumstantial and rational. The circumstances happen because Paul can't go south and Paul can't go north. What's left? West. He's got to go somewhere. He's going to go west. Circumstance. But then verse 10 is very provocative here. It should make you think. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That word concluding means we talked about it, we debated it, we, we came to a rational conclusion, we, we discussed it, we tossed it around, talked about the pros and the cons and the alternatives. We, we really discussed this and hammered this out together. I think that's very interesting. I'll, let me finish here and I'll mention why I think that is. Notice here, third, God's guidance is both individual and corporate individual and corporate. The vision comes to Paul, but then the decision is made by them together. God has called us. God, we left because it's for us to preach the gospel. I think that the usefulness of this passage when we think about God's guidance is not so much in helping provide us with some helpful how-tos. It seems really like the usefulness of this passage is to head off some of the more crazy ways that people have thought they were following God. Um, The plans that you have in following God should be coherent. They should be rational. They should be reviewable. You should be able to set them before other people for their input. If you think, if you're following, uh, uh, if you're pursuing some plan because you think it's God's will for your life and no one else thinks it makes sense, or you're refusing to listen to them, you should be very, very careful. Some people say, that very, very carefully, say, God has led me to this. I know it. I just feel it so strongly. At the Next, who are you to question what God has called me to do? Who are you to want to rationally discuss this? 
Who are you to want to review with me what I am sure is an impression from God about what I should do? That, that attitude comes out sometimes. Well, my caution to you would be if the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul had a vision and he took it to his ministry team, <laughs> maybe you should too because you ain't no Apostle Paul. Now, I mentioned here in this text why why the text why doesn't the text uh, tell us about how the spirit made his will known to Paul. It doesn't say that at all. And the reason here I think is because Paul wants us to know something else about the Holy Spirit. The point of the passage is not about listening to the spirit. The point is learning about what the spirit is passionate about. Which brings me to third, I want to talk about, again, being a spiritual person. This is a passage, this is a story about the relentless push of the Holy Spirit to send the gospel. He wants the gospel to go. He wants it to cross continental boundaries. He wants it to go from Asia into Europe. He wants it to cross ethnic borders. He wants it to cross national borders. He wants the gospel to move, to spread. There is no one in our church who is more passionate about spreading the gospel than the Holy Spirit himself. And one of the signs that you are keeping in step with him is that you are increasingly invested in that too. When you look at a map, whether, you think, uh, whether it's the new Lancaster map uh, showing where we are in the foyer or the map that's behind me, or when I look at the big map that's on the wall in my office, uh, when you look at that, think about the places that the gospel needs to go. I assure you that the Holy Spirit thinks about the places where the gospel needs to go. France, Norway, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, Indonesia, Japan. These are countries where there's few followers of Jesus Christ and, oh, the Spirit wants the gospel to go there. Or you could think in very in much smaller spheres, your neighborhood. Some of you, I know you live quite a distance from your neighbors, but think about them. Most of you live closer anyway to your neighbors is the gospel across the street, in that house across the street, is the gospel there? Is the name of Jesus lifted up in the people who live uh, uh, to your left and, and to your right? Do you know who is relentless in your neighborhood desiring to see the name of Jesus spoken in those homes and revered there? The Holy Spirit is. Last month, Kathy and I uh, flew from uh, Harrisburg to Orlando for a conference. We went to the Gospel Coalition Conference. The church sent us, and we're very grateful for that opportunity to go. I will warn you, if you're ever in an airport heading to Orlando, Florida, in the month of April, most of the people on your plane will not be going to a conference. Um, They'll be sitting in the waiting room to get onto the plane, and they'll be thinking about beaches and SeaWorld, and Palm Trees, and Universal Studios, and they'll be thinking about Disney. Um, There was a family that was there, ready to go. Uh, It was almost harder to tell who was more excited about going to Disney World, the children or the parents, getting ready to get on the plane. Of course, the kids are excited, right? Mickey Mouse, Cinderella, all that wonderful stuff. And then the parents, though, were thinking about this as the culmination of their plans. 
They, they had saved and they had planned and they had worked at the, at all for the expectation and joy of giving this vacation gift to their children. They were excited about this. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is a plan that was formulated by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before time began. Uh, The Father through the Son called the world into existence and the Spirit was there beautifying and adorning the world. And in the course of time, the Son was born, the incarnate Son of Mary, and He did exactly everything that had been planned, including His grisly death and His resurrection. And now the Spirit has come and for 2,000 years, He's indwelt people inside the Church of Christ and He's moved them and He's pushed them and he's, He's encouraged them to spread the gospel message around the world how relentless do you think he is that he participates now in pushing you to fulfill this plan that the father son and spirit made so many years ago how excited is he about the the gospel going he wants people to know and to hear and to believe in the lord jesus we went from that world map this world map to your neighborhood, thinking about the people who live next to you. And we went from eternity past here to the present. I want to shrink down even a little bit further. Can you understand this morning how the Spirit longs to have the gospel inside your life, inside your mind, inside your heart? Think about this text. I hope you can see the Spirit's desire as he moves Paul along I hope it's occurred to you that this is not just for ancient people, but it is for you too. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. The Spirit's passion may not be immediately evident to you. But can I suggest to you that by reading this very passage this morning and by your presence here among many of us who who are trusting in Christ, that this is a testimony to the Spirit's opportunity, Spirit's longing that you have the opportunity to hear this and believe this? The Spirit is anxious for you to hear about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He lived a life that no one ever has lived before, one that was at all times in perfect harmony with the good pleasure of our Creator God. There was not a moment of impatience in Him, not a moment of petulance or self-righteous anger or bitterness or greed. He never stole a penny. He never spoke an untrue word. You don't compare to that. I don't compare to that either. See, the lives of everyone who has walked on this planet except Jesus is a life that's disoriented by our rebellion against God. He lived a life that no one else has ever lived. And after about 33 years of of this sort of life, he died a death that no one could have conceived of. Not just because it was agonizing, but because it was substitutionary. A substitutionary death for rebels and ingrates. Paul said, someone might possibly dare to die for a good person. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of the best stories that we have in our culture, all the best stories feature the death of a hero or a heroine. Think about it. We'll be classic for just a minute. Sidney Carton offers himself for Charles Darnay, 
and dies a hero in Tale of Two Cities. Lily Potter offers her own life to protect her son from the evil wizard who is trying to kill the infant, um, Harry. It's Memorial Day, 2006. In 2006, uh, nine years ago, there was a 19-year-old man. His name was Ross McGinnis. He was in the army. He was in a Humvee in Iraq. A hand grenade was thrown into the Humvee. Before anybody had a chance to react and do anything to it, he threw himself on it. The grenade exploded, and in the process of that, he saved at least four of the soldiers who were with him in the Humvee. He was posthumously, a few years ago, awarded the Medal of Honor. All of our best stories, all of the stories that we love the most are the story of the sacrificial hero And all of them are just shadows of the great sacrifice. He lived a life no one's ever lived. He died a death that no one could possibly have conceived. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He sits at his father's right hand. And I... I I can today, because of what the Spirit does in this book, I can plead with you this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, to turn to him and trust in him. The Lord Jesus offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith. Oh, the Holy Spirit is passionate about this. He's more passionate than anyone else in this room. He is passionate that the gospel be preached in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in your neighborhood to the ends of the earth. And if you know him, you will be passionate about this too. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning through Jesus, your great Son, our Savior. And we come with uh, joy as we read in this book about the relentlessness of the Holy Spirit. Father, we confess to you that at times, perhaps even often, our passion to see this message spread, it flags, it it um, is anemic. It's um, a, a barely smoldering wick. Lord, we confess to you that uh, we are not as enthusiastic about this, as thoughtful about this as, as the Spirit is, for sure. We look at maps sometimes and we think about how we want to be there. We don't think about how the gospel needs to be in that place. Lord, thank you for your mercy upon us that we rely upon every day. And oh, how we pray that you would make us spiritual people with minds and hearts set on the places that the gospel needs to go. Work that in our church. There are so many men and women in our congregation who are who do think about this. And I'm grateful this is a sign of your great grace in our church, how how thankful we are. Uh, Help us more, more, more to have minds and hearts in places where the gospel needs to go. On my street, in my neighborhood, in the, the complexes and neighborhoods and developments 
represented by the men and women that are here today. Oh, Father, work this in us by your Spirit. He is powerful. We pray these things in Christ's name together, saying, Amen.